Good morning, church. Um, Bobby, would you mind helping me with this? You want to come on up, join us on. This is Bobby, elder, prayer partner, and friend. Bobby, this is for you. Yeah. Here. Go ahead and take this. Yeah. Yeah. Feels nice, doesn't it? Get, get a good grip. Feel the blade. Is it sturdy? It's, it's a bit used. Happy with that? Yeah, good. That's all. Uh, bless you, brother. It's good. You may take a seat. Scotty? Uh, could we put this at the crime scene, please? Thank you. Thank you. Fingerprints can change your life. Fingerprints are proof of presence. It's what a fingerprint is. It is a proof of presence. It proves this person was here. This person touched this or they did not. This person did something or they did not. They were here or they were absent. And we're going through the final week in our Book of Esther series, which we have called the Fingerprints of God. For the last nine weeks, we've been looking at God's fingerprints all throughout the book of Esther. Book of Esther is an interesting book. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned by name. There's no grand miracles. There's no fire falling from the sky. He's not parting any seas in, in any particular way. Some commentators would say that this is actually purposefully done by the author of Esther. That to accentuate the apparent gap between God not being mentioned, God not doing anything dramatic, yet his presence is all over the book. His fingerprints are all over the life of Esther and God's people. And so as we're wrapping up the book of Esther today, it kind of leads us to this question for ourselves. We've been learning to see God's fingerprints in the book, but how do I see, how can I see God's fingerprints in my own life? Right? You say that, okay, God is for me, he's working for me, he goes before me, but I don't see it quite particularly. It kind of feels like my life is just tumbling along. Am I subject to happenstance or am I subject to providence? How much is God directly stepping in? Am I just suffering things? Is he causing things? Is he allowing things to happen? Is there any difference between those? How can I know God's working? How can I see he's working? How can I know he's working if I can't see it? If you've ever wondered where God's hand is in your life and how you can come to know this for yourself, I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 9, as we finish Esther chapter 9 and Esther chapter 10 together. Let me give you a little bit of a preface. Chapter 9 opens on D-Day. This is the day of the decree. It's actually the day of two decrees. This is what happened. Bad guy named Haman, he's second in command of Persia. Persia is 200 square miles. It's estimated half of the world's population lived in Persia at the time. It's a big deal. He's second in command. He manipulates the king into putting forth an edict, a declaration, a decree that on a certain day, everyone in Persia can attack and kill the Jewish people and you can take their stuff. That's the decree that he puts forward. Queen Esther steps up and says, hey, surprise, uh, Mr. King, husband, hubby, babe, I'm Jewish. This is not good for me, and this actually will not look good for you either. The king is not pleased. He has Haman executed, and instead they put forward basically a counter decree. Due to the Persian legal system at the time, you couldn't cancel a law. It couldn't be overturned or overruled. This decree still stood. But what they did was put forward a counter-decree that on this day of genocide for the Jewish people, 
the Jewish people were allowed to defend themselves. They were allowed to exercise self-defense. If someone came to your house and wants to kill you, kill your wife, kill your children, and steal your stuff, you're allowed to use force to defend yourself. Okay? Sounds reasonable to me. This is where the chapter starts. This is the day of two decrees, one bringing death and condemnation, one bringing life and liberation. Let's read this together, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of, Lord of, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, pray for me, Pershadatta and Dalphin, Asphata, Porata, Dile, no, that's not that one. Eridata and Parsmatha and Erisai and Eridai and Vazadatta, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatta, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. They were going to die, and now they lived. They were going to be attacked, and now they're defending themselves. Haman sought for their destruction, and Mordecai got a counter-decree that they could defend themselves. And when I'm reading this passage, what stands out to me is the phrase in verse chapter 10. It says, they laid no hand on the plunder. That's interesting, because given their counter-decree, they were within their legal rights to Lay hand on the plunder of those who tried to kill them. Why is this put in here? I think, this is just me, the author of Esther is trying to defend the moral integrity of God's people in their self-defense. He's trying to show the legitimacy of their actions. Why? There's a long trail of breadcrumbs going back to the book of Exodus. When God's people were delivered from their enslavement in Egypt, they're wandering through the desert, and the very first people who attack them are the Amalekites. The Agagites come from them. We'll get there. The Amalekites tried to wipe them out completely. This was the first group that tried to commit genocide on God's people. These were the first Hitlers, okay? Then in Exodus 18, God is making his covenant with Moses. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless those who bless you, and I will persecute those who persecute you. The Amalekites are seeking to destroy you. Guess what? I'm going to erase even their memory from the face of the earth. They're trying to cut you out. I'll deal with them. It's not going to be a problem. Jump to 1 Samuel 15. God says to Saul, hey, you're about to make war with the Amalekites. I want you to destroy them and don't touch their stuff. Don't plunder their goods. Don't take their wealth. This is not about socioeconomic benefits. This is about defending yourself against those who want to kill you. Okay? And what happens? Saul does not destroy them, and he takes their stuff. And because of that, Haman comes from this very line. 
Because of Saul's disobedience, now Israel is yet again threatened with genocide. Because of one man's disobedience a thousand years later. This is in that same line of conflict that's happening here. So it seems like the author is trying to defend the legitimacy of their self-defense. They didn't take the stuff. They defended themselves against their enemies. And we can be honest, the violence in the Old Testament can make us very uncomfortable. This is something that we got to faithfully study and wrestle with and pray about. But if you thought that part was tricky, it gets worse. So let's keep reading what happens after this. Uh, This is in verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then, what, what, they, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Let them defend themselves against tomorrow. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Tricky stuff, right? Esther says we want another day to defend ourselves. And also I would like the ten sons of Haman, their bodies to be publicly displayed. It's tricky, right? It's kind of dark. Maybe up until this point, you've been, you know, telling your daughters, dress up, put on a dress. We're having a princess party. You can be like Queen Esther. Now it's, mm, I don't know, I don't want boys crucified on the lawn. That's not a good thing, right? You don't see this in the, the flannel graphs in Bayview Kids. You're not going to see Queen Esther and ten guys impaled on a post. We might be able to do that soon. Hannah's leaving. We have an opening. That's besides the point. Food, thank you, Father. Food for thought. <laughs> but, but what do you do with this? Is this good or is it bad? There's... From what I've seen, there's no consensus amongst scholars if what Esther did here was right or what Esther did was wrong. Let me explain the the two positions, two options. Option number one, what Esther did here was good and righteous and holy. Why? Well, it said that the Jews were becoming more feared, more popular, and more powerful. Maybe she knew that not all of the people that wanted to kill them were going to strike that day. Maybe they were going to wait another day to do a secret secondary strike. Maybe she knew that. That's why she asked for a second day of legitimate self-defense. It doesn't say that in the text. That's just some kind of conjecture on my part. Maybe she had good reason for doing it. Also, she was the closest thing to Israel's leader at the time. They had no formal king or queen, but she's the queen of Persia. They're in Persia. Maybe as their ruler, she and she alone had legitimate grounds to ask for this opportunity to wage war on their enemies. This is kind of the context of Old Testament holy war. At certain times, God tasked people with being vessels of his judgment. It's not how it works in the New Testament. Maybe this is an instance of that. And maybe her displaying the ten sons of Haman. This is her proclaiming, this is our God. If you try to destroy us, this is what happens to you. 
and maybe so this is kind of like a, a public PR communications thing. Maybe this is just how it was done back in the day, and it's offensive to us, but that's the game. That's how it was played. That's option number one. What Esther did was fine. Option number two, some people read this and think, what Esther did was not good. One day of self-defense, that's reasonable, but she asked for another day of bloodshed and slaughter. And this was gratuitous. This was over the top. This was scorched earth. There was no grace in this. Mordecai, he was good to bring forward the decree for self-defense, but she was doing unnecessary over the top. Maybe the book of Esther shows us that power corrupts because all the leaders do a lot of bad, dumb things. And maybe it shows even Esther, even this great queen can be corrupted by power. Maybe there's a lesson here in the, the dangers of power itself and her uh, you know, crucifying the bodies of the guys who came after them. She's just power hungry. She's just power tripping. Option number one, option number two. There's no consensus. Okay, maybe the Bible sheds some light on this. The narrator says nothing. It doesn't say if this was good or bad. It doesn't say the angels rejoiced. It doesn't say God was weeping. Nowhere else in Scripture refers to this event, so Scripture doesn't clarify it. Okay, what about the, the early church fathers and theologians? No one wrote a commentary on the book of Esther for the first seven centuries of the church. No one touched it. It's like a grenade with the pin pulled. No one, no one touched it in that way. And scholars have no consensus. So what do you do with that? Well, this can actually be a learning opportunity because we know that the Bible tells us all we need to know. It doesn't tell us all we want to know. Scripture is sufficient. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is profitable for godly living. And it is clear on matters of first importance. You shall love your God and you shall love your neighbor. Christ is Lord. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave and he is coming back again. What about Esther chapter 9? Secondary. You can talk about that with your life group. How old is the earth? Old enough. Should I send my kid to public school or private school? Send him to school. How predestined are we? You're predestined enough, and that's it. You can, you can work out the details for yourself. We'll know in heaven one day, but we know enough to walk with God now, even if all of our answers aren't perfectly clear on the secondary issues. So we can have some intellectual humility and an open-handed approach to these more ambiguous parts of the text, which have no bearing upon the main plot point, okay? So we'll leave it there. Now let's keep reading on. Chapter 9, we're going to jump down to verse 17. This was, they're talking about the aftermath now of the battle. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. It's explaining why the people in the capital city celebrate on this day and the people farther out celebrate on a different day. But they choose to celebrate. They're not richer, but they're happier. They're not more secure in their earthly possessions, but they are more secure in their eternal inheritance. And so they choose to celebrate. They look at all the reversals that have happened throughout the book of Esther. Mordecai was powerless, and Haman was powerful. But in the great reversal, Haman becomes powerless, and Mordecai is now second command in all of Persia. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and be paraded like a king. But Mordecai was paraded like a king, and Haman was executed on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai to be killed upon. God's people went from fasting and weeping to feasting and celebrating. 
They went from destruction to liberation. They went from mourning to celebration. Want to take it further? Haman wanted to be like God, but God became a man. We were supposed to die for our sins, but Christ came and died for our sins. We had our sin. He had his righteousness, but he took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. He died and went in the grave, but he rose and defeated death. He ascended on high, and one day he will return to reverse the curse. The book of Esther is about how God can redeem and reverse the most horrible circumstances. And now the final parts of the, the, the book of Esther are going to explain the spontaneous feast that arises from this celebration. Let's jump now to verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and he had cast poor, that is lots, they're like Persian dice, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his, uh, that his evil plan that he devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Jewish people said, hey, you rolled dice that we should die on this day, but we lived. Let's call these the dice days to show the irony of this. After the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. This is why our Jewish friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters still celebrate Purim to this day. I've been to some Purim parties. It's a good time. We're going to call these the Day of the Dice. Haman was a pagan man, and he thought by rolling the dice, the spiritual world would tell him when was the best day to commit genocide. And God's people said, well, guess what? Haman rolls the dice, but our God controls the dice. Proverbs talks about that. Man casts a lot. God determines where it falls. And so they throw a celebration, spontaneous, not commanded by God. They celebrate what he has done. That's the big idea. God does something great in your life. You can celebrate. Christians aren't great at celebrating. We're very toned, relaxed people, right? Our sin does not lead to celebration. Our sin leads to condemnation. And many times the ways that we party and celebrate, it dishonors the Lord. Just like in the book of Esther, there are drunk men who abuse women and they make terrible decisions for the nations. But we have something to celebrate. Like God's people, we are liberated. Here's the good news. God became man, lived without sin, died on the cross, took your place, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father and has sent his spirit. Now you have a new nature. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And this life on earth is the closest to hell now that you will ever experience. It's only going to get better because Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. Jesus serves you. Jesus seeks you. He's prepared a place for you. He's set a table for you. And he will rejoice over you with singing for eternity. And that's something that we get to celebrate as God's people today. Amen. We have something. They were quiet in the first service. Bless you, brother. I appreciate that. Keep it coming. This is what Purim is. Salvation requires celebration. Salvation requires celebration. That we can celebrate the great things God has done. You can have friends over. You can fire up the barbecue. You can get good music and celebrate in your life the things that God has done. It's great. And this is probably where the VeggieTales movie ends. This is not where the book ends. 
It's similar to the, the Lord of the Rings movie in the third one. All the hobbits come back to the Shire. They're clean. The, the ponies are nice and thick. Shire's looking great. In the books, they return, and the Shire has been destroyed. That they had a victory, but the world is not yet perfect. The book of Esther is about to show that. God's people had a victory, but the world is not yet perfect. We're going to jump and read just a few verses from chapter 10. It's the epilogue. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the lands and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. Chapter 10 opens, and the king imposed a tax. They're celebrating while a new tax is being introduced. That's very timely. I don't tend to do that. Babe, it's a fourth carbon tax. Get the champagne. Even champagne is taxed more, hypothetically, so I've heard. They celebrate in the midst of continual taxation. They're still under King Ahasuerus. They're still in Persia. They weren't delivered from there. The king did not repent. He didn't fall on his knees. He saw God act, didn't have a heart change in this way. They're still under a wicked king. They're still strangers in a strange land. Oh, you didn't die? I'm going to tax you more. Death and taxes. Those are the constants in life. Amen? That's the lesson for Bayview kids today. That's what, I, that's what I told Pastor Hannah. <laughs> and that's it. And that's where it ends. So the book of Esther ends. That they receive deliverance. But this earth is not yet perfect. But it points us. These many deliverances. These many messianic figures point us to the king who will come one day. The perfect leader. Who will give the ultimate peace. Who will bring the ultimate deliverance. And the ultimate kingdom that is to come. And that's the book of Esther. So looking at the book of Esther as a whole, you can kind of rapid fire go through. There's a lot of lessons we can see from this book. The first thing Esther shows us is that God is always at work even when we can't see it. God delivers his people, but he seems hidden and quiet. And that's what Western Christian life can feel like a lot of times. I don't see any grand, miraculous events. God isn't sending me a message in like my alphabet cereal or in the clouds. It, it seems like things are just tumbling along. But God is always at work even when we can't see it. That's kind of the essence of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is active trust. And trust is earned. So I've seen God's word. I've seen his hand in my life. And even though I can't, I can't see it right now and it's confusing and it's foggy and it's hazy in here, I don't always have access to God's reasons, but I do always have access to God's heart. And I can trust that he is at work even when I can't see it because he's been faithful then and I know he's faithful now. That's what we can see in Esther. Second thing, Esther shows us that God will use imperfect and even evil people to accomplish his plans. It's not good guys and bad guys. It's bad guys who need Jesus. Esther and Mordecai aren't perfect. They're not perfect people in the faith. Mordecai has his adopted daughter, and he's, he's cool with her going off for the harem tryouts for a pagan king. You want to try out for the sex Olympics with a pagan king? Okay, go for it. Esther's married to her husband for five years. He doesn't even know she's Jewish. It's not like she's observing the dietary laws or going out for the, the feasts and worship in this way. She was living a quiet, 
private faith that is similar to a lot of ours. These are morally messy people, and that's good news, because so are we. Mordecai, Esther, Moses, David, Abraham, Noah. You pick someone. No one is perfect but Christ. So we can learn from them, but we can also see how God uses them despite their imperfections, and that's good news. Esther shows us that God can reverse even the most horrible circumstances. God's people were living in the shadow of genocide. The people that wanted them destroyed was second in command of the most powerful nation on the planet. And the edict goes forth that cannot be overturned, that they will be destroyed. And God slowly begins to reverse it. Look at all the little quiet things that happen. Vashti is removed as queen. Esther gains favor among the harem, even among the other women, and she's chosen as queen. Mordecai happens to overhear an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. Years later, five years at least, the king can't sleep at night. He says, read me some of the the historical records of our kingdom. And he's reminded of what Mordecai had done. Mordecai is elevated. And when Haman is freaking out, realizing that he's really ticked off the king because he put forward an edict that's going to kill the king's wife, he's he's losing his mind. He falls at the queen's feet. The king happens to walk back in at that very moment, seeing Haman approaching his wife. That's a no-no, and it gives him the legal ground to have Haman executed. All these little things. Either the Israelites won the lottery ten times, or there is a quiet and firm hand of providence leading them throughout their life. If that's them, what can God be doing in your circumstances right now? that you can't see. We saw that God gives us rest from our enemies. That's the phrase that's used here in Esther 9. It's what God uses on the Sinai covenant. I will give you rest from your enemies. And Jesus gives us rest from our enemies. I don't have to walk around angry and bitter holding on to all the wrong things that have been done to me because I need justice. But I want grace. And both are satisfied on the cross. Christ pays the price for all the evil that has been done against us and by us. And now we are free to live in grace, receive grace, and offer it to others. I don't have to perpetuate the cycle of anger and hate and resentment, but I am free to open my hands to this person, whether or not they will receive it from me. Esther shows us that important ministry is often done by those not in vocational ministry. There ain't no pastors in Esther. There's no prophets, no PhDs. These are ordinary people, not perfect people those who are responding to what God has called them to do. Maybe you're sitting and you're thinking, hey, those people on the stage, those those are the real Christians. It's like watching the NBA, right? That's that's the professional Holy Spirit. I've kind of got like a house league Holy Spirit kind of thing. I don't need to go around talking about Jesus. I don't need to kind of work on my prayer life. I'll let these people know God for me in this way. The same spirit in me is the same spirit in you. And God loves to work through broken vessels because it shows his glory even more. On the same point, Esther shows us that women play important roles in God's kingdom. Esther didn't give birth to some son who did some incredible thing. She was a woman with a messy sexual past, no formal education, didn't come from a great background. She was an orphan in this way. She doesn't give birth to someone amazing. She is the woman with a fearful, quiet, weak faith who steps forward and is used by God. Maybe you're a woman here today and you think, I'm not, I'm not super eloquent, I'm not studied in all this stuff. You know, either I'm in a relationship that I'm not proud of or I'm not proud of what I've done. Maybe you're, you're trying to have children and you can't and you, you feel like you're incomplete and you're not full as a woman or God could do better things for you. 
But God can use you as you are, sister. That's your calling today. That's your inheritance. But don't clap because it's Father's Day. (laughs) And finally, we see that in the end, God wins and his people rejoice. And we know that our victory is secure. We don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory that was done on the cross. And so every time we celebrate, every men's event, every birthday party, every baptism, birthday cake in the lobby, every time we go out and celebrate an anniversary or a wedding and we feast, we are getting a foretaste of what Revelation 13 calls the wedding supper of the Lamb when Christ returns for his church, the bride, and we will be with him forever, and we will celebrate, and death will die, and sin won't have its hold on me. I'm not going to keep doing the things I hate. It's not going to be hard for me to love others or receive love. I'm not going to love things that are bad for me. I'm not going to wrestle with my past anymore. I'm going to be free, and we will praise God's name forever. That's what we see in Esther. That's what we see in Revelation, and that's what we will see for eternity. And so this helps us to answer our original question from today. We're trying to answer this question, how can I see God's fingerprints in my life? How can I see God's fingerprints in my life? Where do you want to do it, Chris? Oh, bless you. That's good. (laughs) How can I see God's fingerprints in my life? What's the skill? What's the muscle that has to be developed? How can I see God's fingerprints in my life? You dust. You dust. That's how you see God's fingerprints in your life. This is my mother-in-law's, in case you were wondering. The same mine. dust. The odd thing is fingerprints can only be seen after the fact. You can only see fingerprints after the fact. How can I learn to see God's hand in my life? There's over 122 verses in the Bible that refer to God's hand in relation to his action in the world. First step is this, learn to recognize God's hand. Would you even know it if you saw it? Do you know what it looks like in God's word? Do you know what it looks like in human history? Do you know what it looks like in your own life? We get so caught up because we stare at our circumstances and not up at God and how he might intervene, how he might extend his hand and change things. Second is, oh, John Flavel said this, the Puritan writer, he who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. Do you even look for it? Do you know what to look for? Are you looking in the first place? Second is, learn to recognize God's voice. Do you know what his voice sounds like compared to the other voices that speak into your life? Do you know his voice in his word? Do you know his voice in prayer? Do you know what you're listening for? And if you're unsure about these, this brings us to the third point. Get in community. Esther's freaking out. This decree has come. If I go forward to the king, I'm going to be killed because he hasn't summoned me. I haven't even seen him in a month. He's hanging out with the harem, the other ladies. Maybe he doesn't like me anymore. Mordecai says, hey, Maybe you've been placed for such a time as this. The people around you can see things that you can't. They can see things that you can't. Here's an example of of how this happened, and it brought me here today. Uh, 
how far back to go. My grandfather passed away on Wednesday. And so I've been thinking about his life, his legacy, and how it's affected me. He grew up in a, a family that was part of the Hell's Angels. The guys in his family were Hell's Angels and the women were practicing witches. The basement of his house was an underground casino for the Hell's Angels. And God pulled him out of that. And he went to OBC, Ontario Bible College, which became Tyndale. And my father did a one-year program at Tyndale. And I thought, cool, I'm going to try going to Tyndale. And I studied economics and philosophy. In my fourth year, I had to plug in one more course in my semester. So I just took 18th century English satire. It's as fun as it sounds. I just needed an easy A. Yeah, I don't care for it. And in that fourth-year English course, these people came in. And they said, hey, we're part of an organization that sends Christians into countries that are hard to get into. So if you have an English degree and want to go to a country around the world for five years, come talk to us. I have no English degree. I ain't going anywhere. But I came and talked to them. And I said, hey, that sounds dope. Have a nice life. They currently lived in the, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That's the northern part of Korea. And I said, that sounds cool. That sounds fun. Have a nice life. Three months later, they called me and said, hey, there's an opening for a team that we're sending in to teach at a university in the capital city of the northern part of Korea. Catch my drift. They said, you want to come? Why not? So I went, taught for a month. At the end of the trip, people gather around you. They pray, they prophesy, and they said, hey, you're a nice guy. You're funny. Great magic tricks. That's cool. Went home. A year later, I went back. And at the end of the trip, when people were prophesying, one person said, God wants you to listen to Becca, what she's saying. She said I should think about teaching in a church. Didn't go to school for that. Another guy said, God only gives me images and visions, but he, he told me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I fly back home to Toronto. The next day, I did a magic show at Bayview Glen. It was terrible. And I thought, it's fine. I'm never going to see these people again. Okay? At the end of the show, Pastor Lucas came up and said, you ever thought about teaching? And I said, no, go away. He said, come do the pastoral residency. We finished the residency. So I said, I don't know if teaching is for me, man. And he said, okay, well, COVID just hit. Come on, staff. Two weeks to flatten the curve, and then after that, we'll figure out, you know, if this is for you. COVID stayed. Lucas left. <laughs> and the church said, hey, can you do some of this teaching? I'd done five sermons in my life at that point. I talked to my friend. He said, you need a mentor, someone to teach you how to preach. I said, I need someone like Sunder Krishnan, someone like him. It's like, I need to learn basketball. Okay, I need to learn from Michael Jordan. Like, that would be great. Didn't think I'd get him. Staff meeting the next day, Lucas said, I've been talking with Sunder Christian. He's agreed to mentor Sawyer and teacher. And so here I am here. Don't, don't, there's no butterflies. I didn't think preaching was for me. But I thought, okay, this is God's hand on my life. I know his voice. The community around me has said, we see this in you and we affirm it. So in the hard weeks and the hard seasons and the difficult challenges of this, I know this is where God wants me. This is where he has me now. Learn to recognize God's fingerprints in your life. The second part is this. How can I see God's fingerprints in my life? Not only do you dust, but you are dust. That's Genesis 1. We are the dust that God has breathed his life into. We are the dust that reveals his hand in the world and proclaims to others the work that he has done. So we're about to take communion. We're going to sing a song and then take communion. And I want you during this time to reflect upon the meal that we celebrate, like Purim, where they celebrated their deliverance. We take a meal together and celebrate the deliverance that Jesus has brought to us that will lead to our ultimate celebration. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you for the book of Esther with all of its challenges and, and characters and reversals and redemptions and salvations and the way they celebrate and how it's a model for us and how we can feel lost and not always seeing your hand. Would you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts receptive to where you are leading us in our life, whether it's how we thought it should go or not. And would you help us to speak this out to others around us as well? Amen.